0: Welcome back to The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dennis Widan, Dr. Saba's producer. For today's episode, the doctor will be in the lecture hall. Recently, Dr. Greenhouse attended the University of Arizona's CEAC short course and got the chance to catch up with a few of the students and speakers about their work in controlled environment agriculture. This week, we're sharing her conversation with Casey Shasteen and Chris Kaufman in the university's research vertical farm. Casey Shastine is a biosystems engineering master's student and Chris Kaufman is a biosystems engineering senior undergrad and a first year student in the accelerated master's program. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, welcome back to The Doctor Is In. I'm your host, Nadia Saba, president of Dr. Greenhouse. I am at the University of Arizona and the Controlled Environment Agriculture Center here in Tucson, Arizona. And I am in the research vertical farm with two master's students, uh, Casey Shastine and Chris Kaufman. Hi, guys. Hello there. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me. I'm really excited to learn about your experience here in the vertical farm, which is new since I graduated, which was kind of a long time ago now. Um, but I'm excited that you guys are now doing some research in this new, exciting field of vertical farming. So Chris, tell me about yourself and how you found controlled environment agriculture and the center.
2: So uh, I am born and raised Tucsonan. Been here since uh, I can remember. Um, Not sure whether or not I want to get out of it or not. We're still on the fence about that one. But um, yeah, my experience with controlled agriculture has been kind of weird because I have no previous experience with agriculture. Wasn't raised a farmer. No farming experience or inclination. I've always kind of had a passion for biology. I really like, uh, as a child, I always liked going to the desert museum, seeing how uh, like, the natural world and getting involved with that um so i've always kind of had a passion of biological systems and kind of how they work and interact with each other and then by the time i rolled around to high school i kind of got more involved with the engineering kind of side of things i uh, did a lot of engineering clubs after school things like that and then i think it was senior year uh, we had a little project we had to do and i wanted to build an aquaponic garden which i saw online and I thought it was really cool. That's where you combine like a little tiny fish tank and you can grow a few plants with it. So that was my engineering project for my uh, high school thing. And I put it together and it failed terribly. So <laughs> uh, it was kind of funny because everyone, everyone laughed at me for it because everyone was building little robots and things. And here I had a fish tank with some pipes and and some plants
1: that's way harder than robots by the way <laughs> these are living systems right True. yeah
2: um but you know that kind of inspired me to kind of want to do something like that and when i got to the u of a here i didn't actually know that existed the engineering program here kind of you go in undecided so you have a year to decide hmm. what major you want to do so you're just an engineering student and i bounced around looking at a couple and then i discovered biosystems engineering which i'd never heard of and, you know, even after majoring majoring in it, it took me two years to figure out just what it meant because it's such a weird abstract term, biosystems, mm-hmm. can be applied to a lot of things. Um, but then, you know, I was working for one of the engineering summer camp that they have where uh, they get a lot of incoming high school students and kind of show off different parts of campus and the engineering college. And I was kind of, I was one of the counselors for that. And we came to the SEAC one day. And this is the first time I ever went to the Controlled Ag Center. And we got a tour of the facilities, met some of the professors, saw the tomato greenhouse. And I was like, this is kind of my style. I kind of like this. I kind of want to do this. And after that, I got in touch with Dr. Tolleson and I got a student position in working in the greenhouse. And then from there, it's kind of snowballed into working here.
1: That's awesome. Nice. Casey, tell me about yourself and also tell our listeners what we're listening to in the background.
0: The the maddening clicking you hear behind you is a multiplexer, which is part of the control system of the vertical farm, and it (laughs) runs all the time. Basically it uh, is the actual physical switching of wiring inside the data logger, which allows it to read instruments uh, sequentially as the, the program goes through its sensing loop.
1: Wow. We're going to take a picture of the guts of this to post with this interview because it's very fascinating when you look at all the wires and everything that's going on in the background Mm. making this clicking. So Casey tell me or tell us our listeners about yourself and how you found Control Environment Ag.
0: So I bounced around as a kid from (laughs) continent to continent. Uh, My parents were in the military so I've been to uh, Florida, Germany, England, Japan, Virginia, uh, Arizona, Finland. Texas. Wow. Yeah, it, it was quite a, a adventure. Didn't spend much more than three years in any one place, and uh, during that time, I mostly developed a, an appreciation of mathematics okay. and physics, and I wanted to understand how the universe worked. And so, mm-hmm. my first degree, my bachelor's degree, is in mathematics and physics, and that uh, got me into wanting to know more about space and uh, space flight, spacecraft exploring the universe and uh, part of doing that is going to involve making agricultural systems which are able to be used in space or on other planetary bodies and so my interest is in developing growing systems mostly for uh mars at this point because i think that's the most likely candidate for the next planet that humans can be on okay Uh, but also uh, any kind of orbital habitat that has rotational gravity i I think think that uh, there's room on one of those for a space ag-, ag system of some kind. So the first step in learning how to grow things in a completely controlled, uh, c- completely closed environment mm. is the controlled environment. And this is uh, one of the best places to do that. The thing about the place, uh, about the university, which really drew me in is uh, I saw an Earthlight video on the Mars lunar greenhouse. And this seems to be really the only place that has a a working facility that's dedicated to understanding how to grow crops in space. The University of Guelph in Canada was another option, but uh, it's uh, kind of the wrong country, a little far away, so. You didn't
1: want to move to a different country in a different city?
0: (laughs) Well, I probably would (laughs) have, but I I think that the the, the costs for being out of country are even worse than for being out of state. Oh yeah,
2: for sure. It can't be the weather here either,
0: The weather here is pretty great for uh, space research just because the humidity is low.
1: Why so, is that good for space research?
0: Because you you have the problem of adding humidity to be where you want it to be rather than taking it out. Like if you're in Florida,
1: uh-huh. everything
0: is soaked all the time. It's 100% yeah. humidity. You step off the plane and you can't breathe. But here, the, the energy costs of adding water to the environment are a lot lower than trying to take it out
1: for sure Mm -hmm.
0: so it's a little more convenient uh, just atmospherically
1: so i mean just to stick with you for a minute casey what is the research you're doing and how does it relate to growing plants in space
0: so my research was focused on uh, how to control environment in the vertical farm in a way that would optimize resource use efficiency. Okay. And that's something that you would want to do in space for sure, but uh, when I came into the program the Mars Lunar greenhouse didn't have any funding or operating, uh, so I kind of didn't go to that as my research. But uh, vertical farming is really close, so I went ahead and took up the challenge of uh, trying to figure out how to optimize resources and a lot of the research, research has been to look at different varieties of crops and different environmental conditions and find the optimal places like what's the best temperature to grow out for the entire development of the crop and my idea was maybe we don't want to do that maybe we want to have an environment which can change if you have a normal environment where you've got consistent growing patterns you'll know how the plant will turn out in the long run mm. But if you have a changing environment, you need to have some way of understanding where that plant is going to be uh, when your environment has gone through a crazy sequence of, oh, the temperature's high now, or oh, the CO2 is low now,
1: hmm.
0: or the lights are changing, how, how bright they are. And the way to do that is to have a, a growth model, which is accurate in, in changing environmental conditions, and a feedback mechanism to make sure that that growth model is actually on track. And so, uh, I came up with uh, some experiments to kind of test that and to calibrate a model that did that. And the way we did that was uh, grew a bunch of crops at various set points and uh, uh, different varieties and changing CO2 conditions, set CO2 conditions, and then used the model to calculate where the model thought it should be and used the data from the plants to understand where the plants actually were and then adjusted the physiological parameters that the model uses as a base to get the model on track with the observed data. Then we did a test run to see how well it was able to predict when you start having CO2 in different places in the growth. So first week, second week, third week, fourth week, high CO2, and can the model predict how the plants will actually develop?
1: Um, I have like a million questions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And for the feedback part of that, uh, I had a camera system looking at the plants as they grow. So I observed their expansion as they develop.
1: Okay. So let me start with what were the physiological parameters that you monitored and measured?
0: So the real big parameter of interest for the model is biomass. Okay. So that involves... Fresh weight? Taking... Well, mm, dry mass is what the model calculates in, but I think, uh... I've added a function into it, which allows you to, to calculate fresh weight at any point during its development as well.
1: Okay.
0: So the the process for measuring that is you take a, a random sampling of plants on each level in each environment that the plants are in and you, for each variety of plant, and you, you take it, you put it on a scale, you make, measure its fresh weight to start, and you put that in the oven, you cook off all the water, and you measure its dry weight. Okay. And of course I, I did have that feedback mechanism too. So I was also measuring its top projected canopy area, its area as you look down on it from above as it grows.
1: Uh, first off, I just want to say that it is so cool that you created a model and then modified. are- Modified,
0: act- I didn't create, but yeah. uh, uh,
1: Oh, okay, fine. So you modified you modified an existing model? An existing
0: model? model. It was used to be for greenhouses okay um, now we can use it for vertical. for
1: and this is for leafy greens specifically for lettuce for plants? lettuce
0: specifically. Yeah. for
1: lettuce specifically okay so it was a greenhouse lettuce simulation
0: mm-hmm.
1: then you tried to fit it to a vertical farm or are you used it and then you measured you actually did some experiments mm-hmm. tested whether or not that model fit what you're actually Seeing right. and then created like a correction factor or modified it in a way to get
0: how close. There are physiological parameters which are not necessarily the same in the vertical farm as they are in the field. Like what? So in uh, or in the greenhouse, basically, uh, for the, s- the sunlight, okay. you've got a different spectral composition, so that had to be adjusted for. You also have a lot more intensity in in a greenhouse. Uh, the sunlight might be coming in and giving you. 800 micromoles during the middle of the day whereas in the vertical farm we're, we're down more like 200, 300 micromoles. Sure. And when you reduce the intensity of the sunlight you uh, can affect the CO2 compensation point. It, it actually kind of drives it higher uh, according to other people's research. So I had to do quite a lot of other research. It's not a factor I was measuring during my experiments. So hmm. I also complemented my experiments with reading a, a fair amount of literature sure. and trying to understand how this environment would affect the parameters that go into the model.
1: And how would you use this model? How would a grower, a vertical farm grower, use this model? A
0: specific example would be, for example, HVAC systems can have an HVAC economizer. And in that, the, the system will occasionally decide to suck in outside air and use that to amend the inside air. In a way that saves the energy of having to cool the inside air or Mm. to dehumidify the inside air, it's a very effective way to lower your HVAC costs. However, in a vertical farm, you're trying to have a high CO2 environment, so you're quite frequently injecting CO2. So you're uh, every time you pull in outside air, uh, you're displacing the air that's inside the farm, and you're losing your CO2. So you're gaining. Uh, energy savings on the HVAC side but you're losing uh, money on the CO2 side so a system which can model the effects of losing CO2 and uh, understand how the HVAC system gains its uh, economy benefits will be able to weigh the benefits of either uh, ventilating or not ventilating uh, in, in using an HVAC economizer
1: So if if I may just take this one step further, I'm just going to ask one more question associated with exactly the example that you gave. Sure. Could you say, okay, so we're going to use an airside economizer to cool and dehumidify the vertical farm, but we're going to displace all this carbon dioxide. Now we're going to have basically ambient CO2 levels. Could the simulation then say, okay, what is the light level or what is the temperature now that I should be targeting to make up for the loss of co2 so if you're running you know a thousand parts per million at 200 micromoles um, and you're like well I want to save energy could you then say can the model then say well then at ambient 400 you need to turn the lights up to 300 mm-hmm. micromoles
0: so that's the third part of the control system that I didn't do for my, my own thesis okay but uh, the way that I, I foresee it working is you have a machine learning algorithm which will basically trial different environmental scenarios running into the future of the crop until the harvest date that you want. And it will mm. find the right sequence of events wow. to minimize the resource use over the remaining crop development. Uh, and then will also attempt to target your desired yield and uh, the harvest time.
1: And here's the balance of these parameters in order to achieve that goal.
0: Right, and it it should um, find a a near optimal solution to give you the perfect uh, environmental conditions based off of predictions about what the costs of lighting energy or the outside weather is going to be. So the cost of energy from the lighting company can be a factor, and the, the outside energy, uh, the outside temperature, if it's a hot day, you, that can save you uh, HVAC time.
1: Sure. Is it also the cost of, say,
0: CO2? Uh, CO2's Not... cost is pretty predictable. Uh, it kind of comes from the petroleum industry usually. Okay. But uh, if you were maybe running a different source of CO2, like mushrooms growing next door, you mm. that could possibly factor be integrated in. into the, okay. to the system might be a pretty complicated thing to yeah. do, but... <laughs> um,
1: we need more math majors to be modeling and simulating biological processes. That's uh, pretty amazing. I,
0: I had a... Uh, head of, the head of my previous university
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, gave a, 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 cro- uh, a talk, and this was before I was even interested in that, but he called it the cross-pollination of disciplines. Yes,
1: yes. I love that. I, tr- I use that word a lot, cross-pollination. Um, so, so Chris, you are, your you're technically a senior in biosystems engineering, but you're doing the accelerated master's program, so that means you're also a first-year master's student?
2: Yeah, so kind of how it works is um, the engineering department and a couple other uh, departments at the U of A allow what's called an accelerated master's program where you can get a master's degree in your specific major. Within a kind of condensed timeline, so I'll I'm eligible to take up to 12 credits of uh, Master's classes this year, okay uh, Which will put me ahead and it kind of is like me starting my first year of master's although uh, next year So I'll graduate from undergraduate school uh, in May, but the next year. I'll be I'll have one year left and hopefully graduate from master's with a BE master's degree, so i'm kind of trying to i'm looking into my research now i've identified my projects and i'll probably begin working on it over the summer and what when what is that project so uh in vertical farming you know this facility here was kind of all about optimizing the growing conditions for benefit of actual commercial growers because you know a lot goes into vertical farming. It's a very high energy and high labor kind of intensive process. So growers really need to optimize their kind of conditions. So light levels, CO2, things like that. So if they're not running optimal, you know, you're prone to losing costs. And then that's a risk. So one of those things that's kind of been overlooked is airflow. You know, a lot of vertical farms are kind of remodeled warehouses. You know, mm-hmm. you buy an empty space in an urban area setting or in an urban city or whatever and you kind of renovate it to accommodate this indoor vertical farm. The problem with plants is they're not like people and therefore buildings, these buildings that are being renovated aren't designed, specifically the HVAC systems, aren't designed to accommodate plants. So when you have like a central blower or a couple blowers in like the top corner of the room, sure you might get Adequate airflow, but you're going to have to expend more energy uh, as a process or as a result there. And the other thing is, since you're growing indoors, you're prone to stagnation uh, of of air because you don't have as much mixing around. Mm. So you know, older vertical farms have had have tried to mitigate this by just having like computer fans or some central blowers. But there's been a lot of studies and a lot of research into optimizing airflow across the the plant canopy to try and mitigate um, that formation of what's called the boundary layer Uh, it kind of gets a little into fluid uh, mechanics there so you get this stagnant layer it's called the boundary layer across the plant canopy and what happens then is it kind of inhibits the process of transpiration so you know transpiration is all about pressure differences in the air and in the root cell so when you have when you don't have an optimal difference there, the transpiration will be occurring at its most optimal rate. So what happens as a result is the plant is kind of prone to deficiencies. So the one we're kind of looking into specifically that's been kind of a topic of the past research is titburn. So yeah, that's just a calcium deficiency mostly. And you know, it comes about from different environmental factors, but airflow has been found to really have an effect on it.
0: Airflow and humidity yes
2: and humidity thank you casey yeah Yeah, airflow and humidity especially have a big impact on the occurrence of tipper in a crop and essentially if you've ever seen it in the innermost leaves of like a lettuce or leafy green plant it kind of gets crispy edges around there uh, because the nutrients not being delivered to the edges of the leaf Mm -hmm. so therefore it kind of senesces a little bit and you know that devalues the crop the grower is not able to sell it if at all, but you know, are at a uh, decreased price. So it's really doing a number on commercial vertical farms, which is why there's been research into kind of optimizing airflow across to kind of promote a natural, more natural air mixing environment.
0: And uniformity.
2: And uniformity, uniformity is a big one too. Uh, uniformity is a big focus in indoor ag and in controlled ag in general, you know, uh, that's what
0: people are looking for, a uniform consistency. So my if, you have, if you have a spot that doesn't have good uniformity, you might have part of your crop ready for harvesting and part of a crop that needs another a few, few days. That's a logistical nightmare.
1: Part of your crop that has yellow tips yep. or yellow center and part of it that's lush and green. Yep.
0: Yeah. Uh, so
2: my research will be kind of comparing different... The, the research, it seems, into airflow has kind of gone off into different directions. So a lot of it has just been applying a horizontal like laminar flow across the canopy to just Mm kind of get a gentle breeze across uh, the plants that you have there. And that's been kind of optimized. It's found that like between like 0.75 meters per second to one meters per second is kind of optimal for reducing tip burn while not affecting crop growth at all. And
1: that's for a horizontal airflow? Yes. Okay.
2: And then there's also this other direction where there's a more vertical distribution where you have like perforated... Uh, turbulent flow coming down to kind of just mix up the air across, so you'll have a higher kind of jet coming out of your your blower, and then um, by the time it reaches the canopy, it'll kind of diffuse and mix. So uh, those are the kind of the two directions that go on in. Is that.
1: is the airspeed the same for vertical so distribution?
2: The target airspeed on top of the canopy level that's the same, um, mm-hmm. but like if you think about it, in order to reach that to get like sizing your blower to kind of accomplish that and sizing your system that'll be different because depending on what system and even the size of your vertical farm and dimensions uh that can change a lot of factors there so uh the ideal kind of airflow just around the canopy is like point like i said 0.75 to one meters per second there and there's different ways to kind of get that so Uh, There's been research done, we had a previous grad student here who actually modeled a vertical airflow delivering system, so she created a computational fluid dynamic model taking a room similar to our UAG farm and kind of modeling the optimal setup for like how many different perforations in the tubes do you have, how many tubes do you have, uh, the spacing between the holes, kind of the level and the height. Or pressure in the tube. Yeah, the pressure. How much volume you move. So she modeled all that. She did several different studies to find an optimal case for that specific kind of environment. And so then there's also been studies with the horizontal, finding like comparing the directions of the fans facing inward and outward, or Mm -hmm. facing one single direction. Um, And there's been optimizations there. But you know we haven't really come to a consensus on comparing the two. And you know depending on where you are, vertical farms look very different you know they're not all the same uh like for example you know here in a lot of the in the western countries like Europe and the US uh, there's a lot more head height between levels we, So I'm not, what's a lot So um, cause
1: they still seem pretty short
2: so yeah it's still pretty short but you know here like in our chamber we have let's like two two feet there in height wow.
1: that's a lot yeah. for a
2: vertical farm it's a lot for a vertical farm <laughs> Um, but then, you need to
1: squeeze another layer in there, you exactly. guys. Exactly. <laughs>
2: um, but then, you know, in a lot of the Asian countries, like Japan, uh, like here, you can see on the wall, we have a picture of a plant factory there from Japan. The head height is really small, really
0: narrow, so okay. putting oh, a... It's almost half layer and a half head height. Oh Yeah, my exactly.
2: Goodness. Oh, wow. So it's really condensed, which is good because you can fit more plants in there. Um, but you can't fit a vertical airflow distribution. It just won't work. That'd so... be pretty hard. Yeah, and applications like that, horizontal is like the only way to go there. Okay. It's
0: almost like the entire layer is a pipe.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the goal of my research is to kind of compare both kinds of systems. So I'll be adding to our existing vertical farm a one level with a vertical airflow distribution system and then one with a horizontal. And uh, I'll grow a crop, try and stress it out to induce tip burn at a higher DLI, daily light integral. Um, multiple layers, multiple light levels.
0: Multiple light levels. I'll be. Uh, are you thinking multiple varieties, maybe?
2: Yeah. So yeah. I'll do. I'll be doing a study with a butterhead lettuce and then I'll, a leafy oak leaf lettuce. So, so one
1: that has more of a tighter structure and exactly. one that has more of an open structure. Yep.
2: Yeah. So cool. compare uh, different, I guess, physiologies of leafy greens. To see how that affects it at and all. And What's your
1: hypothesis?
2: So my hypothesis. Has yet to be fully constructed. <laughs> okay. Um, well, what do you? I
1: mean, but what do you think? Which is going to be better?
2: So I suspect that I think the horizontal airflow is probably the way to go because you achieve a more uniform laminar flow across your canopy. If you take a look back here, uh, kind of looking at this model, you'll see that with her with her uh, model there, you'll see there's little spots. So it's not exactly uniform, ideally. Okay you get some little dry spots and you know Casey and I were talking about how you could kind of reduce that by maybe having the perforated pipe rotate mm.
1: so it would kind of
2: blow kind of slightly like one of your indoor fans you know how it blows slightly. An oscillating, yeah, pipe yeah, oscillating pipe or something it, yeah, yeah. okay yeah,
0: I you, like that. That way wouldn't necessarily give you a uniform flow but if you average over time yes. yeah it would give you a more uniform flow.
2: So uh, and you know I've seen from what I've seen done in the industry it seems people are going more towards the horizontal flow anyway okay um some of the examples i've seen with indoor farming for leafy greens and even cannabis have been having indoor or er, uh, horizontal blowers
0: i actually have suspicions the other way i think the vertical yeah. is going to do better just because you can penetrate down maybe even past the leaves and blow a little bit underneath the leaves
2: okay and yeah that's another thing to think about if you're doing other crops that get like say cannabis or tomatoes or something yeah, very the, uh, open leaf structure mm-hmm. yeah something that gets taller and has an open leaf structure uh, having delivering airflow to not just the top of the plant but you know below and around the leaves too is going to be important
0: as well so it could go either way <laughs> yeah
1: that'll be interesting to find out because i know about a lot of these cfd studies and analyses and i haven't seen a lot of actual in situ (laughs) experiments that have looked at you know even doing smoke tests (laughs) or measuring how the plant is really responding Mm -hmm. you know as an hvac engineer myself i always think about the practicality which you mentioned right i mean with these vertical farms having different configurations for their racking system some are using towers mm-hmm. right even it's great to simulate a solution but can you actually implement that solution so i'm glad that you're going to do some some tests with that
2: yeah that's i've had a lot of problems with some of the models because you can't there's no plant setting for the de, like deciding your media it's mm. they have to choose like a porous <laughs> or like an uneven yes but, you know, that's not accurate. Because depending on what plants you like, no plant is the same, even though they might look the same. Still, the surface across uh, changes. So that can have maybe minor effects on the airflow. But, you know, it's still worth looking into.
0: I've also seen a lot of those studies basically model the plant as just a blob. Yes. And not that's... actually...
2: What's a blob? Just, oh, literally, <laughs> a blob.
0: A, a just, shape yeah. that is amorphous. And without um, without actually narrowing it down to the... The real morphology, morphology of the plant. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, as the as the mathematician, how would you even go about create? How would you go about creating a mathematical equation to incorporate even the variability in that, individual plants?
0: That's something you should have asked Megan. Is it? <laughs> yes. Okay. That's, that's going to be her her thesis. Oh my goodness. That's exciting. <laughs>
1: That is exciting. Yeah. When when we work with CFD simulators, they ask us all the time about the plant, like right like what's this is the plant height. And then they'll they'll mention well we can model the plant these two For different sure. ways. And I know that Dr. Kachira has a way, one of the ways he says ha- have been used here at the university, but I've seen other simulators use the opposite version. I don't know what they're called. I know porous is one of them, and I can't remember what the other one is called. It's a very technical term. So
0: I think but. one of the methods is to take different layers and treat them as though they're basically wet pieces of paper mm-hmm. and slightly permeable to the airflow.
1: Interesting. Okay.
0: But, you know, that doesn't it doesn't give you stems, doesn't give you stalks. Yeah. They all do something.
1: Right. <laughs> right. And even how do you model the interaction? Between yeah. the plant and the environment, that there is so much happening at that boundary layer. Exactly. I, I don't even know. <laughs>
2: that's why uh, I'm more of a hands-on learner, so I just would rather build yeah. it. and Test it. Like so that's
1: that. what you're going to do. I'm assuming is yep. you're going to be doing a lot of uh, fabrication of systems and yes. ducts and fans, and that's so, going to be awesome.
2: Yeah, it'll be an exciting. Uh, it's a little daunting because you know I've taken fluid fluid dynamics <laughs> class. Uh, but apart from that, I have almost zero experience with the HVAC systems like that. So it'll be- it'll Well, give be me new. a call if you need any uh, support. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> so he's,
0: uh, we've got uh, a machine shop uh, just across the road. Oh, and yeah. We can do a lot of the fabrication. And so I'll probably cool. be working with Mike Mason over there.
2: Yeah, he's got uh, got all the
0: bells and whistles there.
1: Nice. So, that's going to be so fun. Yeah,
0: He's got CNC lads too, yeah. Mm-hmm. So oh, cool. Yeah, it's pretty pretty good tech over there.
1: So Casey, with your model, um and and then comparing it to like what's happening with plants in reality are you actually growing these plants yes so i (laughs) want to hear from both of you and i have a different question chris for you on this line
0: lived this um, nightmare i guess (laughs) Uh,
1: why oh perfect segue why is it a nightmare
0: well there is an awful lot to do and it and it all happens (laughs) in just a few days okay tell us more no i mean overall the workload isn't too bad except for the fact that you have to to, to get everything done on a really rapid schedule in order to meet uh, your experimental deadlines for one thing and also to meet the deadlines of the plant you know if you run it too long you're going to start risking the uh, plant bolting ah. and for the uh, experiments in particular you want a very nice consistent environment so you've really got to uh, rush <laughs> not rush but um, carefully organize your time in order to make sure that certain things happen by certain moments in order to get the data that you want.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, So the main rushes are initially you've got the setup where you've got to sanitize the system and get everything cleaned up and then load up the water and the nutrients and get the sensors calibrated and then by the next day pretty much you need to start getting your plants running in there and they need to have been started to get ready about two weeks before so you have a, a, a seeding day. It's usually not too bad, unless you're trying to do all the levels in all the chambers. Oh man. But uh, two weeks after that, you've got the transplant. And the So
1: you germinate and you wait two weeks mm-hmm. until you transplant into here?
0: Yes. Uh, wow, for for okay. lettuce, it's a it's two week uh, period of, uh, there's initial three days of germination, and then they mature at a uh, very, very high density. 1500 plants per square meter oh wow and then you break off each individual plant and insert it into your your eventual planting density which is on the order of 25 to 40 plants the uh, 48 maybe 50 plants per square meter that's
1: a big difference
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it's huge and so you are making really good light use efficiency on that first transplant because the, it's, you're cracking so many plants into yeah. a small footprint and then, very suddenly, they're you know, 10, 10 inches away from their nearest neighbor. And the light efficiency use goes way down. As, because? As most of the light is hitting background mm. instead of hitting plant material. Yeah. And only the, light, the photons that hit plant actually participate in photosynthesis. Everything else kind of bounces around the chamber and makes it really bright in there. So as the plant matures, it improves the light use efficiency and the, as the plants expand and eventually start touching their neighbor at canopy closure about week three. After that, you're getting basically your, your maximum. The light is always hitting plant and you're never losing it, except for what pours out in the edges of each layer. That's sure. another advantage to the Japanese way of having everything really close together. There's a lot less room for light to escape from the edges. Okay. But that's a challenge of airflow too. Yeah. Because you could try maybe capturing those photons with some nice white plastic to bounce everything sure. back in, but now you have no airflow.
1: Yeah, you can't get the air from point A to point mm-hmm. B because you have an obstacle in the way.
0: So there's there's engineering-level concerns right at the building, first first construction of the building.
1: Wow. Have any of these systems ever failed on you? Fine fail. <laughs> <laughs> you define fail.
2: <laughs> well, uh, actually, yesterday. Yesterday? While we were giving our tour, <laughs> no! our pipe for, from our CO2 canister... I guess, uh, you know, it's one of those, did we ever decide, was it polypropylene? Probably. Uh, it was, a you know, our little tube there, it's been there, I don't even know how long. Uh, I guess just from the sun damage over time, it, like, got really brittle, and it cracked.
0: Plus so then the cold from the CO2 as it comes out. Yeah, oh, sure.
2: And so, yeah, after we were between tour groups, I walked out, and then just CO2 just everywhere. So oh, my God. We had some, uh, crisis... We entered rapid crisis repairs. mode, yeah, rapid yeah. repairs. Um, so, so far, everything seems fine. Let's check in the levels today, it seems okay. normal. but
1: What's uh, normal in here?
2: So, right now we're actually growing at 850 parts per million. Okay, so, how'd you choose that number? Um, that's based off of, that's become our research standard, uh, based okay. off of the ongoing project that we're part of, the Altimia.
0: One of our previous graduate students did research here where he varied the CO2 levels mm-hmm. and the light intensity. And once you get above a certain CO2 level, it uh, seems to start to actually hurt the, the Hurt. So it's
1: not even a diminishing return? It actually like starts to decline? Yeah, you
0: get decreasing yields yeah. above around 900.
2: Interesting. So,
0: yeah, we keep it around
2: 850 as our controls, and that's okay. kind of in the standard sense. So my question
1: for you, Chris, yes. is you had mentioned that you were working in the greenhouse. And now you're coming into the vertical farm. What are some of the differences right away?
2: <laughs> so uh, I'm not sweating as much. That's the first thing. <laughs> okay. Which uh, I guess you could say this is AC nice.
0: unit up here is a very nice thing to have. Okay. Yeah, very
2: nice. Um, but yeah, I kind of wanted to get the experience of both because I'm still trying to figure out what direction I'd like to go. And you know, obviously, both incorporate similar systems, but working in a vertical farm is very different than a greenhouse you know it's a lot more controlled a lot more precision at least in the research uh, level here at the SIAC and
1: probably what people are trying to achieve at the commercial scale too
2: yes yeah so the greenhouse there's a lot more labor going into it manual labor at least you know with size disparities you know the the one the teaching greenhouse i think is 5,200 square feet and then this room here is like Seven, 18? 18 yeah. So square, square meters. Square meters. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm metric. Oh yeah. Uh anyway so um yeah but it was different. it's very different because we don't really do lysimeters in here. There's really not a need because we have sensors monitoring things in real time that communicate here. There are like no pests in here. Uh the only thing I gotta worry about is if I didn't sanitize things correctly I might be prone to like pythium or some kind of root rot but I haven't had that trouble yet, but, you know, no bugs, so that's kind of nice.
0: Same for me. I, I haven't seen any bugs or, or uh, pathogens.
2: That's cool. Um, and But, you know, the energy usage is kind of a concern for me. Uh, <laughs> Are you guys monitoring
1: energy use here? Yes,
0: we have yes. sensors on the walls of both chambers, which measure wattage. Wattage. And, uh And the amount of integrated wattage over time over the course of these. Kilowatt hours? Yeah, kilowatt hours. Got it. Got it.
2: Okay. So, um, yeah, it's very different because, you know, growing tomatoes is very different from lettuce. Uh, oh,
1: yeah, because you're probably growing a different crop yeah, out we're there, too. Yeah, are growing
2: tomatoes, peppers, and cucumbers. Okay. Um. Which... So you
1: didn't just have a different facility, you had a different crop also <laughs> yeah, to learn.
2: Yeah, very different. very Almost night and day. Uh, Because tomatoes, a lot of work goes into those, you got to do weekly trimming and leaning and lowering from the style we're growing them. And then uh, harvesting as well. So there's definitely a lot more work that went into the greenhouse. As Casey mentioned, with the vertical farm here, it's a lot of downtime where I'm almost doing not much. And then there'll be a week of like three weeks straight where it's like constant working, struggling to get things together.
0: Harvest time can be a a real bear.
2: Yeah. So I think that the stress goes up a little with vertical farming, because if one thing goes wrong, it can kind of affect... You don't have any natural buffers. In a greenhouse, if you have supplemental lighting, you know, they don't... They go out. At least you still have the sun, right? Mm. (laughs) Or, you know, if if things go wrong there, there's a little more, I guess, room for error. Here in the vertical Hmm. farm, it seems a little more... Everything's a little pinpoint.
1: Less forgiving,
2: yes, and the style because I was, uh, as a, it was a bigger facility, and I was the student manager, so um, you know, I had to kind of work with the interns and the students there, and a, a lot of communication and um, delegation kind of experiences there. And here it's mostly just me, we have one or two helpers, Casey. Yeah. Kind of walk I was going to
1: ask, do you stuff. guys work together to help with transplanting and harvesting and things I did like that? a
0: lot of stuff alone when I was researching. Uh, I did occasionally have a helping hand or two, but uh, it really does pay to have at least one yeah. other person around to, to give you a hand.
1: Yeah. Nice. So. What would be the equivalent... If, if we were growing this lettuce in a greenhouse, on one layer, right, mm-hmm. one level... Um, you guys are doing deep water culture. Yes, deep water. So if we did deep water culture in a greenhouse, do you know what the equivalent size greenhouse you would need for this vertical farm? Oh gosh,
2: I'm blanking on the. Oh man, I was just looking at the uh, the square footage of growing space the other day. It's totally... about
0: 18 square meters or um, 180 square feet. You know, multiply that by 10. Is yeah. just the the cheap? Yeah. So
1: 180 square feet is the size of the room is or the, the size, size of the growing of...
0: area. Growing.
1: The total growing area or like one
0: level? The total growing area for this chamber. Okay. And so there's a, a duplicate chamber on the other side that also does that. Like, so we can basically double it up.
2: Okay.
1: And then how many levels are we looking at here?
0: Three levels.
2: Six. Yeah. So yeah, three on one rack, three on the other.
0: Okay. And, and the two racks can be divided into two different nutrient solutions. Yes. So two oh, chambers. Nice. So we, we have two atmospheres we can do. We have two nutrient solutions per chamber that we can do. Mm-hmm. And then we have. Three levels for different lighting intensities. Okay. Yeah. And do
1: you guys dim lights and play with lighting levels that yes. way?
0: Yes. So uh, the crop we currently have going on,
2: each level's at a different DLI. Okay. So the top one is at uh, at 9, and then we do uh, 13 and 17. So we're really trying to, like, with, with that 17, though, we're really trying to induce tip burn to try and uh, oh, stress it
1: Oh, because I was going to be like, why do you want such a high DLI yeah, exactly. for lettuce? Um, so You're stressing it purposely. Stress,
2: yes. Mm-hmm. And we're actually growing at a higher temperature, so we're at 27 degrees Celsius during the day period. Okay. Maintain it around there.
1: So you're at 70 degrees Fahrenheit? know
2: that's
1: 81. Oh, I'm sorry. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. 28 is 82.
2: 27 yeah, is I, I, I yeah, tr- yeah, I, I have trouble. i got to get a calculator. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree.
1: <laughs> okay. So, so you're around 80, 81 degrees. Yeah, that's pretty high. Yeah. So why are you trying to induce it? Are you just trying to find its... It's limit, it's yes. stress limit.
2: Yes, So, uh, and that gives us a good baseline for when we do integrate uh, my airflow kind of research. We know that it, it will work at when the plant's stressed out. So by inducing these higher, uh, because you know, if you're growing the, the leafy greens in kind of the optimal or the, the status quo, you won't see as much tip burn. So then you, when you put something in there that you're trying to test to mitigate tip burn, You'll be like, okay, was that due to the airflow system, or is that just naturally? You know, do you think
1: trends? Do you think you could mitigate that tip burn at, at eighty degrees? Like, I mean, is there an advantage at eighty degrees? In other words, could will the plant grow more rapidly so that you could reduce the the time to harvest? But then you're obviously risking tip burn if you determine that i need 1.2 meters per second across that plant Mm -hmm. at that temperature and high dli and oh my god i mitigated leaf tip burn is that like a i don't know like so
2: we've kind of yet to see uh (laughs) i'm I'm sure previous studies have done with higher temperatures but we're kind of for this system we've mostly kept it at 23 degrees celsius okay so we're trying to kind of get some variation in their crops and
0: how they perform. We'll see what the effects are, but physiologically, the theory is that the tip burn is being caused by the calcium not being able to make it all the way through mm-hmm. the leaf mm-hmm. before it's uh, cutically transpired. Yeah, Actually, not just through the stomata, but also through the the, the waxy outer layers. Mm-hmm. And so very near the edges of the leaves or in very new developing leaves, the calcium levels are too low for either cell wall formation or for cell self, wall expansion or signaling of the expansion. Oh.
1: Yeah. So if
0: you do have that's higher transpiration, maybe that means that more calcium makes it through, or maybe that means that more calcium gets, sorry, more transpiration happens before it makes it through. Yeah. It's too fast. So yes. In other words, yeah.
1: it kind of leaves the calcium behind potentially. So
2: that's kind of what we'll see with this. Uh, okay.
0: There have been some research studies showing that if you have a high nighttime humidity for a few moments in the night, Mm -hmm. that can help reduce the amount of transpiration that happens during the nighttime Mm -hmm. and maybe get you a little more uh, uh, xylem pressure getting to the very edges of the leaf.
1: Kind of like what uh, Dr. Kubota was talking about today with Mm -hmm. guttation for strawberries, right? Uh Just a couple Mm -hmm. nights a week. Yeah. Um, having this really high humidity and actually forcing sap to the tips right. of the flower or uh, to the berry and, and to the to the leaves
0: So it just needs that calcium for a moment yeah it yeah it doesn't have to be forever mm-hmm.
1: yeah I think that would be really fascinating to figure out because I feel like there could be some energy and water savings associated yeah, with that. Yeah.
0: And Dr. Kubota's method was to use misting systems to mm. locally raise the VPD just next to the leaf. Yeah. Maybe that not the be best in, here in, yeah, in the vertical be. environment. <laughs> but uh, you might be able to do something with uh, reducing the temperature at night that would artificially yeah. lower the VPD. Yeah, sure. Because uh, psychrometrically it would... Uh, raise you up a few, uh, relative humidity levels mm-hmm. True, might be a, an effective. Method. Hmm.
1: And I'm also curious, I mean, in, in your model, Casey, uh, are you, you mentioned resource use efficiency mm-hmm. and you're talking about, you know, simulating how the plant is going to grow under different temperatures, CO2 levels, light levels. How does that translate into using resources? what are these resources so you
0: would need also in addition to the model some equations that tells you what the costs are so what is the the cost of co2 and how much co2 are you injecting into the environment in order to maintain the desired level of co2 okay so you would need a, a scale on your co2 uh source to kind of get a sense of uh what rate at which you're injecting Uh, And in a vertical farm, you usually have a pretty tight environment, but there's also a good chance of uh, leakage through the walls. So Mm -hmm. you may be not getting all of your uh, CO2 into your plants. Mm -hmm. So characterizing what's going on with the wind can maybe play a small part. So weather predictions can let you know what uh, the difference between inside your farm is and outside and also know, let you know what the wind wind loading is going to be and that will affect your loss of heat th- through the walls, loss mm. of CO2 through the walls. And uh, they've already done this in greenhouses where if you let your plants get a little bit colder during the night, you don't have to heat the greenhouse as much. So maybe a similar principle can be applied in the vertical farm. If the day is going to be hot, go ahead and let the vertical farm's environment get hotter. And the HVAC system won't need to work as much right. as to keep the the infiltration Uh, again uh, vertical farms tend to be more insulated than the greenhouse so they don't have as much heat exchange through the walls but it is a factor in uh like when you're looking at differences from dubai to seattle it it can can play a significant role Sure.
1: how about water and nutrients are you also modeling that or paying attention to like how much the plant is transpiring you know i'm just thinking if you had if you have this high temperature and then we blow air across it more quickly. Are the plants transpiring more, meaning that they're using more water? Is that something that we're tracking?
0: Yes, uh, higher rates of transpiration do do make them use more water, but in a vertical farm, in a really well-sealed vertical farm, you can run that condensate right back into the system. And that that does a really huge increase in your water use efficiency, but uh, can also cost you on the energy side.
1: That energy-water nexus gets us every time, doesn't it? Yes, it does. (laughs) So again,
0: that's another trade that the model can help to uh, help a grower or a control system to evaluate. To to optimize, yeah. And another thing you can do uh, with the model is understand just how much light you can lower and exchange for CO2 because Mm -hmm. both of them will cause increased growth. But one of them is a lot cheaper. So more CO2 is good Mm -hmm. and you want to keep it towards the optimal levels. But if you're doing things like with your HVAC economizer, you might be spending time below sub, below optimal yeah. on CO two, and you can try and make that up with light, uh, or you can maybe try and make that up with running your lights at a different time or at a different intensity. Yes, yeah. nice. And then targeting those times of day when you don't need to ventilate as much and have better, uh, more optimal CO two.
2: Right.
1: Did you want to say
2: something? Oh, uh, I'm just. I was just gonna add that. I think in the future. Dr. Kutcher and I are talking about ways we can integrate some way of measuring transpiration uh, or something similar to uh, because it's kind of hard to do. Uh, oh, what's the sensor called that you can...
1: Lysimeter? Uh, well, no. yeah,
2: lysimeter is one but Because, uh, you know, having one of those... Okay, you have it in one part, but it changes depending on where you are. Right. So we're kinda... And those things
1: were like $50, are like $50,000 or something ridiculous.
2: So um, <laughs> we're trying to find a practical way of maybe... Uh, measuring or tracking transpiration in this system uh, Inconclusive at the moment But that might be something we have As part of my experiment
1: You know, your mushroom friends um, Yes They were talking about how they were Measuring, yeah, I thought it was Lycor yeah. It's a Lycor licor photosynthesis. photosynthesis Yeah, yeah that's, that's yeah. right So the, the mushroom experiment where he was trying... The graduate student was trying to measure CO2 production rates. Yeah. And they basically put the mushrooms or the mushroom mycelia in a box. And then they let the CO2 raise. And then they vented it out. And then captured that CO2 to see how much... You know, they knew the volume I mean, of the box and how much air, etc. That's
0: Justin Chung's work. He did it in chamber... Justin. It was Justin. Justin he did it here in chamber B over there.
1: Yes. So could you maybe you could do the same thing with transpiration is just let the moisture rise and then vent it though unfortunately my suspicion is that as the vapor pressure deficit changes as the relative humidity increases the plants are going to transpire less and then that makes it really hard to figure it out
0: now i, I would like to integrate that feature into my model it's something that's missing right now yeah my model does co2 temperature and light intensity but it. It, it, it has a, a point where you could maybe attach airflow yeah. and relative humidity okay. in, into one of the equations, Yeah. Uh, and that might be some interesting future work, which That'd be could great. give you predictions on whether you're in an environment which is likely to cause tipping. Awesome, and that would kind of feed into both of our our, yeah. our work.
2: So I, I think it would be a subject of maybe a future study.
1: One step at a time, right? Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. mean, this industry is still really young, yes, so yes. we we have some time. Whether or not industry wants to believe that or not. (laughs) So tell me what do you guys want to do after you graduate? You guys wanna stay in academia? Do you wanna go work in industry? I'm off to Mars. That's right. You're going to Mars, Mars. okay I'll
0: probably be there with Megan. You
1: and Megan (laughs) are gonna hitch a ride to Mars. Got it. Okay. I like it.
0: Actually I'm
2: I'm not a grad student person. I only really did the A&P program because I wanted to get more involved with the vertical farm and, you know, maybe buy me some more time to think about what I do after. Um, So I probably, I do want to go into industry, Uh, not sure where, which is why I'm trying to jump all over the place, uh, get a feel for what's around me, build up a wide variety of skills that I can take anywhere. But, you know, maybe work at a company, a larger company for a couple years, maybe get like an MBA or something because maybe down the road I'd like to have my own business maybe as like growing in a local I'm really focused on providing local food deserts you know food access and food security so kinda having you know the CEA you you can grow food in places that you normally couldn't and I really like that aspect of you know you go in a a really high density city there uh, population city and You'll just see a greenhouse on a roof. Like, that's really cool, in my opinion. It so is. something like that might be kind of cool. Still haven't really worked it out, but you know, I got time, I guess. They're
0: the same technology which lets you grow, you know, on the moon or on Mars, is going to be the same type of technology which lets you grow out in the middle of the desert or um, in the middle of nowhere with any, without any roads or infrastructure. Solar pro- power production feeds into a battery system lets you run your, your lighting, your pumps, your, your Cooling, if you need it. Uh, that was uh, a big topic of uh, Becca's work, and she was used to be one of the manager, mm. managers uh, of the vertical farm here.
1: Nice. What will you do to bide your time until the trip to Mars?
0: grant proposal writing is what's happening right now
1: okay
0: (laughs) (laughs) so if we can get uh, enough money together to try and build a prototype system we'll we'll look at uh uh, advancing the technological readiness level from four to six which means from lab level to something that's just about ready to fly okay and if uh in the meantime uh, while we're waiting for these grants to come through uh maybe something with a either a vertical farm system or a greenhouse grower, which is using automation, okay. is a uh, place that I'd like to work to understand how uh, moving systems and robotics and uh, more machine vision, automation, machine learning can be integrated into the growing environment in order to, again, improve these models and our ability to optimize resource use efficiency yeah. and get get the, the the costs as low as we possibly can while uh, reducing labor, which is, of course, the, the biggest cost.
1: The big one, yep. yeah. And then energy, so, yep. usually. <laughs> well, you guys, uh, Casey and Chris, thank you for the interview. Thank you for answering a lot of the questions or trying to answer some of the okay. questions that we have in this industry from airflow and optimizing resource use efficiency. Well, the,
0: the most important starting point, point is knowing what questions to ask. Ah, yes,
1: isn't it, yes. though? And a lot of people in, in a new industry, any new industry, don't necessarily know what questions mm-hmm. to ask. They don't know what they don't know, right? <laughs> yep. So thank you for bringing some of this to the forefront and to light. I'm really excited to see what you guys do in the future.
2: Well, thanks for having us. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Awesome.
0: That was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing the master's students at the University of Arizona's CAC Research Vertical Farm. More information can be found on our podcast website, drgreenhouse.com. Subscribe for new episodes every week. And as always, thank you for growing with us.